Today, I want to venture into speculative territory. No one said that trying to fundamentally understand the 13 principles of faith, the foundational pillars of our ideology and religion, no one said it's going to be easy and clear-cut, as if it's all spelled out and there's no questions. And I think today's discussion will certainly prove as much. We are in our fourth session on the 13 principles of faith, uh, principle number 13 that is, and that is resurrection. And we've covered a lot of ground hitherto, even though many important and central questions remain. And today I want to focus on a few particularly gnawing series of perplexing questions that relate to some of the ideas and some of the principles and some of the tenets that we have already covered. And I want to suggest an approach that will resolve these questions and provide a deeper understanding into the ideas of resurrection that we've already touched upon. But I want to warn you, give the following disclaimer, that although what I am going to say seems to me to be accurate, and I think there's some evidence to prove it, it's not super corroborated by the sources. It seems like it's hinted to by the sources, but I haven't seen anyone that kind of lays it out exactly the way that I'm going to do it today. It's not quite as explicit as the way that we will present it for y'all today. And I want to begin with four questions, and, and then I'm going to suggest an idea. And these questions are all going to be sourced, so you'll have plenty of sources, but kind of putting it together... Uh, I have not seen anyone else do. And, and that's going to provide, I think, a, a much deeper insight into the concept of resurrection as we have seen it thus far. I want to begin with maybe a more general question. Last time we established that there are two types of resurrection. There's one in the times of Messiah, and there's one later on as a preparation, a precursor for Olam Abba. It seems like all the sources agree that there are two types of resurrection, two instances of resurrection. One's in Messianic times, and one is in the run-up to Olam Abba, where people are going to be born again, resurrected, for the purposes of their eternal fate. And we differentiated between these two types of resurrection, the resurrection types of Messiah, well, that's exclusively for the righteous. The righteous who worked so hard to bring about Messiah, who worked so hard to advance the cause of God in their lifetimes, they will be brought back to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They will be able to witness the product, the byproduct of their work. They'll be able to do all the mitzvot they, they were not able to do beforehand. You know, the Golden of Vilna, as we mentioned, he never brought a sacrifice. Why should he lose out? There's mitzvot that can only be fulfilled in the Messianic times. The temple will be rebuilt. All the laws, all of them, will be operational. And the people that worked so hard to effectuate that, they will be able to participate in it and earn the benefits of the mitzvot. As we know, there are 613 mitzvot, all of them. And there are 613 parts of your soul, and there are 613 parts of your body, because every mitzvah provides life and vitality and perfection 
an elevation to another element of your existence. If someone did not have the great fortune of doing all the mitzvahs, because they happened to have lived in a time where there was no temple. The Rambam, he lived in the 12th century. He couldn't have brought a sacrifice. Rashi never brought a sacrifice. Why should they lose out? Why should they lose out on the perfection that is attained with many of the mitzvahs? They never observed the laws of Yovel, of the Jubilee. And therefore their soul never benefited from that merit of those mitzvahs. And therefore they're going to come in the times of Messiah and they'll be able to do all those mitzvahs and they'll be able to earn the elevation and transformation of their soul that is bestowed upon it by those mitzvahs. And that way in Olam their soul will be perfectly refined and elevated. And we talked about how the ones who are buried inside the land, they're going to come out first. And the ones buried outside the land will have to roll through the subterranean tunnels. And that is a painful enterprise. And the ones who emerge, because they're buried in the land, emerge first, and maybe even 40 years before the ones who roll from outside the land. That we saw last time. And that's the messianic resurrection. And then there's a second resurrection. And that is for the run-up to the eternal fate. And part of that is judgment. And we saw the memorable analogy of Rabbi Judah the Prince and the Roman Emperor Antoninus, where he says, well, the body and the soul could each could each exonerate themselves from judgment because the body says, well, the soul sinned. Look at me, I'm, I'm totally ineffectual here in the grave. And the soul will say, well, the body sinned, because look at me, ever since we parted ways, I'm flying around like a bird. It must be that the body sinned, and each one can deflect culpability on the other one. And what's the Almighty going to do? He's going to reunite them together and judge them as one. That's what the Talmud told, uh, told us. And thus we see there's, an, there's a resurrection that's part of a judgment process, which, as we talked about last time, that is needed both to judge the wicked, and to judge the righteous. Because if a sin is a byproduct of body and soul, well, so is a mitzvah. And therefore, if you need to have proper judgment, you must have a form of resurrection. And that's going to lead to the eternal fate of both the righteous and the wicked. And that's how we explained how Ramam can say that resurrection is only for the righteous, and simultaneously, the Talmud could say that resurrection is also for the wicked, different types of resurrection. And we quoted a verse in Daniel, where it talks about uh, those who are sleeping in the dust, they will wake up, these, i.e. the righteous, to eternal life, and these to eternal ignominy. And that was the breakdown that we addressed last time. What is not clear is exactly the similarities and or the differences between these two resurrections. It seems a bit, shall we say, inartful that there are two resurrections and they're exactly the same. It seems That seems a bit strange. So what is the nature of the preliminary resurrection in times of Messiah and how does that differ 
from the ultimate resurrection, maybe the universal resurrection, in the in the run-up for Olam Abba? That's a general question. It's not so clear to me, or at least it wasn't up to this point, what exactly are the similarities and the differences between these two types of resurrection? A second question. The Talmud tells us, and we have cited this a few times, that the righteous, even when they're dead, they're really alive. Oh, and the wicked, even when they're alive, they are really, truly dead. That's what the Talmud says in the book of Brachos on page 18a on the bottom, going into 18b on the top. Tzadikim b'misasam krim chayim. The tzadikim, when they're dead, they are called, they are deemed alive. And the wicked, when they are alive, they are krim mesim. They are deemed dead. Here's a question. Well, if the righteous, even when they're dead, they're alive, why do we need to have resurrection? What is resurrection? Someone who is dead, you bring him back alive. Someone who's dead, they're mace, they're dead, you bring him back alive. Well, if the righteous are alive, what is this transformation of taking someone who is already alive and bringing them alive? That's not resurrection. If the Talmud tells us that the righteous, even when they're dead, they are alive, then how can we attribute the term bringing the dead alive if they're already alive? How can we apply this idea of taking someone who is dead and saying, no, 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 you're no longer dead. You're alive. You've been resurrected. Well, if they're alive, even when they're dead, there's no process to bring them back alive because they are already alive. That is perhaps a question. Now, I think there's an easy retort to it. Well, the Talmud says that when they're dead, they're considered alive. They're called alive. They're deemed alive. They're actually dead. Yes, the righteous, they're dead. They are dead. After all, you know, they're not walking around. They're not wearing tillin every day. They're not doing, they're not alive by our definitions and our ways of judging live people versus dead people. They're dead. So yes, the Talmud says sort of this, this, um, a- a- amorphous, unclear, fuzzy concept. Well, they're really alive because maybe their soul is alive. That's how you would respond. And there's some justification to that because the Talmud actually says, that the, the wicked are called dead when they're alive, and the righteous are called alive when they're dead. It seems like it's not that they're, they're actually alive when they're dead. It means that they're just considered alive when they're dead. That, I think, is a very good response to this question. However, I will point you to another teaching in the Talmud. This is in the Talmud, the book of Tainus, on page 5b. Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan said, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, our forefather, lo mace, did not die. Jacob did not die. Well, what does that mean? So, of course, whenever we have a teaching in the Talmud, we have to see what Rashi says. So, Rashi there says, lo mace, what does it mean? He's not dead. Ella chai, he's 
instead alive. Le'olam, forever, he's been alive all alone. Here it doesn't say that Jacob, we consider him still alive. His death is not considered death. It says very clearly, Jacob, our forefather, did not die. Now, the Talmud itself challenges this assertion. Well, how can you say that Jacob is still alive? He never died? I read the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, it says that Jacob was eulogized. Can you eulogize a living person? In the book of Genesis, it also says that Jacob was embalmed. Do you embalm the living? In the book of Genesis, it also says that Jacob was buried in the cave of the patriarchs. Buried? How can you bury a living person? So the Talmud is challenging this idea that Jacob is is still alive. He never died. We see parts of his story that clearly tell us that he, in fact, did die. Says the Talmud, no, Jacob never did, never died. So why did they embalm him? Because he appeared to have died. It looked like he died. It seemed like he died. But he was just as alive as he ever was. And yes, they eulogized him because he appeared to be dead. But he was alive. But they, they eulogized him and they embalmed him because he appeared to be dead, but he was really alive. And they buried him because he appeared to be dead, but he was truly alive. Thus concludes the Talmud. So we see, at least with regards to Jacob, the Talmud says very explicitly, he never died. And although that assertion was initially challenged, the Talmud concludes that no, he never died. Now, the Tosos commentary points to another teaching in the Talmud, this is from the book of Sota on page 13a. It gives a detailed and dramatic account of the burial of Jacob. And it tells about the, the whole procession, the funeral procession of Jacob from Egypt to, 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 to Hebron, to the land of Canaan. And the incredible eulogies that were done for Jacob. And then it says that when they arrived at the cave of the patriarchs, Asaph was there, Jacob's twin. You remember him. And there was only one more burial spot left in the cave. In the cave, Adam and Eve were buried. Abraham and Sarah were buried. Isaac and Rebekah were buried. And Leah, one of Jacob's wives, was buried. And there was only eight spots. And Asaph wanted his spot. He said, well, Jacob, you already took one spot. You buried your wife there. The last spot's mine. And they said to him, but, but you sold your birthright. Don't you remember that for that uh, pot of stew? That red, red, red stuff? You sold your birthright. He says, yes, I sold my birthright. So I'm no longer the firstborn. But I didn't sell my identity as part of the family. So yes, Jacob has the first spot, but I get the second spot. But they said to him, no, 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 you actually sold your second spot. Jacob made a big pile, the Talmud says, a big pile of all the monies and valuables that he had earned outside the land of Israel. And he exchanged it with Esav 
for the rights to the second burial spot in the cave. And thus, Jacob buried Leah in the spot that he owned. And Jacob himself was to be interred, was to be buried, in the second spot that he purchased from Asaph. That's what the Talmud tells us. And Asaph responded, says, I don't remember that sale. News to me. Do you have any documentation? Is there a contract? And they say, yes, there is. But we left it in Egypt. Oh, alas, we left it in Egypt. So again, this is a terrible disgrace to Jacob. He needs to be buried. And Asaph is stopping at them. And there's this very long funeral procession. It's just held up by Jacob's twin brother. And he's demanding to see the documentation. It's my spot. Jacob must be buried elsewhere. So they sent Naphtali, who was a very swift one. He was swift like a deer. Hustled back to Egypt to go get the documentation. He starts running back to Egypt. And meanwhile, everyone's just sitting around until Jacob's grandson named Chushim, he was deaf, the only son of Dan. And he's a little bit slower to realize what's happening. And he communicates to someone, says, what's happening here? And they point to Esav, that man. He's preventing Jacob from being buried. And he got enraged. And he says, until Naphtali comes back from Egypt, Jacob's going to be left over here in, in, in disgrace. That's unconscionable. So he grabs a sword. And he goes over to Esav and he lops off his head. And Jacob is buried. And there's a postscript to the story. The postscript is, well, first of all, it tells us that Asaph's head was buried, in fact, in the cave. His body was buried elsewhere. But the Talmud brings a postscript. The Talmud says that when Asaph was decapitated, this is the words of the Talmud, his eyes fell out and they fell on the legs of Jacob. Now listen to this. This is the critical part. That's Obviously, this is a fascinating Talmud. And what it means is, of course, it's a very deep teaching here. But the Talmud says that Jacob, Jacob opened his eyes and smiled. That's what it says in the Talmud, in the book of Sota, on page 13a. Jacob opened his eyes and smiled. Wait a minute. Jacob is dead. I thought. Dead people don't open their eyes and don't smile. So what does it mean that Jacob opened his eyes and smiled? He was aware of what's happening and he responded to it. Says the Tosos, this is further evidence that Jacob never died. And he appeared to have died. And yes, he was eulogized and buried. And yes, he was embalmed. But he actually was completely alive. As an aside, the commentaries note that even though it's halakhically prohibited to embalm, this is the reason why Jacob was embalmed, because had he not been embalmed, and he would have just lied there 
he would not have decomposed because he was still alive. And then the Egyptians would have deified him because, wow, someone's dead and they're not decomposing. So there was a a, a temporary uh, allowance to a dispensation to embalm them just to prevent the idolatry that would have happened as a result of him not being embalmed. But here's the question. Jacob was alive, is alive. Why is there a need to have him resurrected? Resurrection is saying someone who's dead and bringing them back alive. Jacob's still alive. Now, you may say, well, Jacob, he's for him, there's no need to resurrect him. The Talmud says otherwise. The Talmud says that when the Talmud starts to list all the sources, and we went through this a few times already, the Talmud lists the sources of resurrection. One of the sources is a citation that tells us that the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be resurrected and they'll live in the land. So on one hand, we're told that Jacob is still alive, never died. On the other hand, we're told that he will be resurrected. He's going to come back alive. If he never died, what's the need? That is the second major question about this whole subject. A third question. Rambam, of course, is the one who is guiding us in these 13 principles of faith. And there is a lot of debate over what Rambam, what, what his position is about resurrection and the major problems that seem to be present in his position. Firstly, Rambam says, this is in his introduction to chapter 10 of the book of Sanhedrin in his commentary to Mishnah. That's where he actually delineates the 13 principles. He says the following, death is a necessity has to happen. Why? Because body and soul, they're different. And when someone or something is comprised of different components, the components eventually have to come apart. And therefore, body and soul must eventually separate. Now, what about after resurrection? If body and soul must necessarily separate, why would that not be true after resurrection as well? And in fact, Rambam, in his epistle on resurrection that we mentioned in the past, Rambam says, it appears to us from these citations, this is a quote, that the people who are resurrected and their souls and bodies reunite They will eat and they will drink and they will procreate and they will die. When we listed the 10 questions of Sa'ad Yagron last time, the 10 dilemmas that he has about resurrection, one of the questions was, will those who are resurrected, will they die? And he concludes that they will not die. Yet Rambam says they will die. Those who are resurrected, body and soul come back together. They will die. They'll have a long life, sure, but they will die. And this seems to be very much in line with what he told us in the introduction to the commentary on Mishnah uh, number one of chapter 10 of Sanhedrin, 
Well, body and soul, they're opposites. They must come apart. Here's the problem. The Talmud, in the book of Sanhedrin, on page 92a, the Talmud says explicitly, Sadiqim, the righteous, that the Almighty will bring back a life, will never go back to the dust. Will never, will never die. So, how does Ramam tell us that those who are resurrected will die when the Talmud says that those who are resurrected will not die? Ramam is not allowed to argue with the Talmud. He's allowed to explain it, codify it, organize it. But this seems very explicit. The Ramam says that those, and he says it appears to me, so he doesn't say it definitively. It says it appears that those who are resurrected will die. The Talmud says that those who are resurrected will not die. What, how, do we, how do we reconcile this Rambam? Now, it's also interesting. Rambam does say that in Ol Maba, the world to come, there is no body and soul. It's just a soul. And therefore, there is no death because the necessity of death is only because body and soul are comprised together. If you don't have those opposites fused together, then there's no need, there's no necessity to have death. So evidently, the Ram is telling us that there is a form of life that is bodyless and thus deathless. Well, if there's no body, then what's the nature of the resurrection that brings about that? Resurrection, I was always told, is the reunification of body and soul. There's a version of life, Rabbam tells us, in Ulma Ba, where there is no body. What do we make of that? So again, there's a lot of confusing things happening over here, but Rabbam's position seems to be in conflict with itself and with the Talmud. How can we reconcile it? And finally, a fourth question that we hinted to last time. The Talmud says that there was a debate over the proper sequencing of dressing the high priest for the inauguration. What garments he put on first, what garments he put on second, and so on. And the Talmud says, what is the proper order? And the Talmud Responds to that and says, why does it even matter what the proper order is? What was done 3,000 years ago in the tabernacle, that's already old news. That happened already. Why is it important for us to study the proper sequencing of the dressing of the high priest? And the Talmud says, well, it's still pertinent to us because we don't have a temple anymore and we'll need to have a temple and we'll need to dress the high priest and we need to know what the proper order the proper sequencing is of the dressing of the high priest. Says the Talmud, even for that purposes, we don't need to know the answer because Moshe and Aaron, they'll be there and they know the answer and therefore they'll dress the high priest in the proper sequencing. They know the answer and therefore it's not important for us to know the answer. So again, this is telling us that Moshe and Aaron will be around for the inauguration of the temple, the third temple. At least that's what it's what's implied here. Now, where were where were Moshe and Aaron buried? We know that they were buried 
outside the land. They were both condemned to not enter the land. And therefore, based upon what we know, what we were told, their resurrection will happen at a subsequent date than those who were buried inside the land, maybe even up to 40 years later. Is everyone going to be waiting around for Moshe and Aaron to come to properly sequence the dressing of the high priest before the temple can be inaugurated? doesn't make sense to me that everyone's going to be waiting around for 40 years for the temple to begin operations to wait for Moshe and Aaron to get there. That's yet a fourth question. Okay, so we have, I, I know this is confusing and it's a little bit in the weeds, but I want to suggest maybe an approach that will answer all these questions and will provide a new insight into the nature of the preliminary resurrection. And we'll frame it like this. Abraham purchased the cave of Machpelah from a gentleman named Ephron, Ephron the Hittite. And this is told in Genesis chapter 18. Sarah died at the age of 127, and Abraham eulogized her, he cried over her, and he began to seek a burial spot for her. And he approaches the Hittites, the Bnei Ches, and he begins a negotiation, I want to bury Sarah. I need a burial spot. And there's a whole back and forth, a very lengthy dialogue. And they say to him, wherever you want. After all, you're Abraham. You're like a great celebrity. Everyone's going to allow you to use their burial spot for, for Sarah. And Abraham's very appreciative of that. And he says, I want specifically to speak to a guy named Ephron, the Hittite. And I want to buy the cave of Machpelah at the edge of his field, and I'll pay full price. And Ephron hears that, and he says, no, pay full price. I'm going to give it to you for free. And Abraham is appreciative of that as well. He says, no, I don't want it for free. I want to pay full price so I can bury my dead. And Ephron responded, okay, you want to pay? We'll just, we'll just come up with some basic terms. How about 400 silver coins that are universally acceptable? And Abraham says it's a deal, and the Talmud tells us it was an exorbitant price. Abraham overpaid, but he was happy to do it. This transaction was consummated, and Abraham buried Sarah in this cave of Machpelah. That is what we read in chapter 18 of Genesis. If you read the narrative, if you read it very carefully, you'll find a few problems or a few questions in this back and forth. We know that Abraham is trying to find a burial spot for Sarah. But that objective is repeated seven times. Once in verse 4, Abraham says, Let me bury my dead. Twice in verse 6, they say to him, Bury your dead. And no one will stop you from burying your dead. That's already three. Once in verse eight, he says, if you, if you are indeed receptive of helping me bury my dead. So again, that's the fourth time it says that the objective is to bury the dead. Once again in verse 11, bury your dead. 
uh, sixth time in verse 13, Ve'ekbaras misi, bury your dead. Then again in verse 15, Ve'es mescha, kavar, and you're dead. You should bury. It seems very redundant. You read the, you read the, the whole dialogue, the whole narrative. It seems like it's repeating again and again and again and again that Abraham wants to buy this piece of property for the purposes of burying his dead. Why would I need to say it so many times? Of course, the Torah is very judicious in its use of words. It doesn't just repeat themes that we already know. It never says things which are extraneous. Why does it repeat that Abraham's objective in purchasing this piece of land is for the purposes of burying his dead? Why does it say it seven times? Question number two is that it talks seven times about burying the dead. But the first six times, the word bury appears before the word dead. Bury my dead, bury my dead, bury my dead. The last time, the seventh time, ve'es mescha kevar, you're dead, you should bury. It switches the order. First it says dead, and then it says bury. Why is there that change? Should be consistent all throughout. So the Gona Vilna, he says something unbelievable. And I actually spoke about this in a Parsha podcast a few weeks ago. How many people were buried in the cave of Machpelah? So at the time that Abram made this purchase, there were already two people buried there, Adam and Eve. But afterwards, there's six more spots, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. But there's another person who was somewhat buried there, and that is Esav. His head is buried, his body is buried elsewhere. Says the God of Vilna, the verse is hinting, when it says seven times that dead people will be buried there, or buried there will be dead people, it's hinting to the seven people that will be interred in this site after this purchase. And the first six who are buried, when the verse describes that, it says, bury your dead. They will be buried alive. The burial will happen before they die. Because they're righteous. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah are all righteous. And those people, when they're dead, you may think they're dead, but they're really alive. Jacob opened his eyes and smiled. He appeared to be dead, so he was eulogized. And he was involved, but he was alive. But he was buried. Yes, he was buried, but he was buried when he was still alive. He didn't die yet. And therefore, the word to bury will precede the word die, because they will die only after they're buried. Whereas Asaph, he was dead. He's, a, he's wicked. He's dead even when he's alive. And therefore, the last, the seventh time that it mentions this, the nature of this transaction, it says, Ves mescha kavar, you're dead, bury. That's a reference to Asaph, because he will be dead before he is buried. That is what the Gonavilla says. And he quotes the Talmud that we mentioned earlier. Brachos 18a and 18b. The righteous are alive even when they're dead. Abraham, is, is he righteous? Yes. So he's alive even when he's dead. But he was buried. Yes, he was buried, but he hadn't quite died yet. 
Sarah, she righteous? Sure. So when she's dead, she's still alive. So she was buried before she died. Isaac and Rebecca, are they righteous? Sure. So the word bury appears before the word alive, before, before dead. Jacob and Leah, same thing. Buried alive. Asaph, he's wicked. Meschakavar, dead, you should bury. That is what the Gon of Vilna says. How do we understand this? Okay, to wrap it all up, I'm going to quote one more citation in the Talmud. And this, I think, will illuminate everything that we've, that we've broached so far. The Talmud says, gives a story. Rav Nachman, one of the great sages of the Talmudic era, he had a large field, and he was doing some excavations on his field. And the people who were digging up the field, they dig up a grave. And the problem is, is that the person buried there is, seems to be alive because he starts screaming at them. What are you doing? Don't you see I'm sleeping here? The dead starts to castigate them and reprimand them. So they, of course, freak out. And they go to Rav Nachman. And they say that there's a person who was buried in your land, and we dug it up. This is the Talmud, by the way, the book of Shabbos, page 152b. We dug it up, and he started to reprimand us and castigate us. Okay, that's obviously, um, that's uh, something which should catch your attention. So he runs over there, sees the grave, and sees the guy there. And he says, well, who are you? And he says, my name is Achoi, the son of Yoshia. Okay. And Rav Nachman is a little bit perplexed by this. He says, wait a minute. How is it possible that you're alive if you've been buried? Don't we know? Don't we have a tradition in the name of Rav Mori that the righteous will turn into dust? That's what he tells the guy, the dead guy. Dead, but he's talking to me. He says, Rav Mari? I don't know who that is. I'm sorry, I'm not beholden to some Rav Mari guy that you're quoting. So Rav Nachman tries a different tactic. He says, I have a verse in scripture that tells me that the righteous will die. It tells us that the body will return to the dust from whence it came. So you may not know who Rav Mari is, but you certainly know what the verse says. The verse says that after people die, their body will be restored to the dust from which it came. And therefore, how am I talking to you? Why are you still alive? So he says, yeah, well, you just quoted me a, a citation from Kohelis from Ecclesiastes. You obviously didn't learn all of Tanakh. Because had you read the book of Mishle, the book of Proverbs, you would know that it's possible for people to not actually be buried, uh, or to not actually die, to not, to not return to their dust. And he quotes from a verse in in Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 30, the rotting of the bones is envy. If someone's envious, their bones will rot. They'll die. If someone's not envious, their bones will not, will not rot. 
So don't quote me a verse in Ecclesiastes. I'll quote you a verse in, in, in Proverbs that says, well, if you don't have envy, you won't die. Period. And I didn't have any envy, so I'm not dead. And that's how I can explain this unusual phenomenon of digging up a, a dead body. You thought it was dead. The guy's alive. He's talking to us. He's rebuking us. And now he's explaining the verse that substantiates his life even in the grave. Okay. So Rav Nachman is, is still not convinced. And he, he starts to poke him. And he realized, like, this is not like some sort of a hologram. Like, this, like, he feels it's a person. He has substance. So, like, okay, obviously I learned something. You learn something new every day, right? He says to him, okay, uh, Mr. Achai, why don't you come out? Come out of this uh, uncomfortable grave and come to my house and we'll, we'll talk it over, you know, a cup of tea. And he says, are you saying something so foolish? Not only didn't you read Proverbs, you didn't even read the book of the prophets. And he quotes him a verse in Ezekiel. And you should know, I am Hashem. When I will open up your graves. The verse in Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 13 says, It is God who opens the graves. Not you, Rav Nachman. So I'm sorry, I ain't going to have lunch with you. Only God will open my grave. Now, Rav Nachman is still not fully okay with what he learned. And he says, well, we haven't addressed the verse in Genesis that says, Afar Atta, you are dust. Ve'el Afar Tashuvan, you shall return to dust. That seems to imply that death is a necessity, an inescapable necessity. Everyone thought you were dead. I find that you're alive. Are you waiting for God to open up your grave? Well, how will you fulfill this verse that says that you are dust and you shall return to dust? So he responds, that verse is talking about the future. A moment before resurrection, a moment before resurrection, the righteous will die and will be resurrected. I'm still alive now. I'm still alive. I wasn't envious and if my bones don't rot. I'm 100% alive, but I will die in the future just a moment before resurrection. Here's what I think. There are two types of resurrection that we know. It's been established. Times of Messiah and then the run-up for Olam There's one type of resurrection that's called God opening the graves. What does that mean? The people who are there, like this Achai person in the Talmud, there's nothing that's really preventing him from getting out and going with Rav Nachman and going to his house. But he's waiting for God to do it. He was unnaturally dug up and exhumed, but he's not going to come join the party until God opens his graves, his grave. What that means is that there really isn't a resurrection per se. 
He's alive now. He's alive now. Nothing that's stopping him. If you were to just isolate this Achai person, he's talking, he has substance. The only thing that's stopping him from going to Rav Nachman's house is only because, well, God didn't open the grave, and therefore I'm not going. Are we calling this resurrection? We're calling it almost like an opening of the grave and taking those who are still alive, taking them out. Perhaps that is the resurrection of Messiah. All the righteous who are deemed alive when they're dead, maybe they look to us to be dead, but they're actually actually alive. And we have Jacob, and we have uh, this Achai individual. We have the six people who are buried in the cave. They were buried before they died. Abraham, he's still alive. He didn't die yet. Abraham and, and Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob never died. Leah, Moshe, Aaron. The people who are righteous are still alive. If God just opens the grave, they could walk right out. Of course, we know that Elijah ascended to heaven in a fiery chariot. In the Talmud, in the book of uh, one of the minor tractates of the Talmud, Derech Eretz Zuta, it lists nine people who entered paradise, entered heaven, alive. And they are Hanoch, Enoch, I think is how you pronounce his name in English. Elijah, Mashiach, we don't know who that is, right? Eliezer, servant of Abraham, Hiram, king of Tzur, Evan Melech, the Kushite, Yivetz, the son of Richard the prince, Batya, the daughter of Pharaoh, Sarach, the daughter of Usher, and some say even Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi. We have a list here of nine, maybe ten people who went alive into heaven. They haven't died yet. Maybe all the righteous who are deemed alive when they're dead, in times of Messiah, they come alive because they, they actually never died. And that's the messianic resurrection. It's simply the opening of the grave that God will do. And taking out those who were always alive, just taking them out. And the resurrection that we're talking about, where there is taking those who are dead and bringing them back alive, that's in the future. Where even those who were righteous and never died when they initially, so to speak, died, A moment before the resurrection, they will die so that they, in fact, can be resurrected. Meaning they could go from being dead to being alive. And I think this resolves all of our questions. And it's, again, a very very advanced level study. And that's what we, uh, that was the bargain here. If we wanted to subsist with a simple just reading of the uh, 13 principles, we could have finished it a very long time ago. We started in Jan- uh, not January, I, I don't remember exactly when, but we started in 2019. It's almost 2024 when we are recording this. It's a long time ago. We could have just said, well, there's lots of principles to go read them yourself. You know, you, if you read the Animamans, which is the distillation of these principles, you could do it in about two minutes. But that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to really understand the fundamental level. And I think this is, this seems to me to be a way to resolve all of our questions. Our first question was, well, what do we do of this system of, of resurrection? There's, there's two resurrections. There's one that has a Messiah and just the same thing happens again in the future. It seems kind of a bit, we called it inartful. Now we are seeing perhaps that there 
two very types of resurrection. In times of Messiah, you open the grave and allow those who are living in the perhaps claustrophobic sleeping pods, you allow them to come out. They never died. They are simply being woken up from a long sleep. And they'll come alive and they'll enjoy the times of Messiah. They're not dead yet, but they will die. Everyone who has a body must die, Raman tells us. If you're comprised of opposites, those things have to go back to their component parts. They will die. Even when Abraham and the Hittites were negotiating, they talked about six times, bury the dead. Those six people will be buried first, but then they will die a moment before the resurrection. There's still death just to facilitate the rebirth, the renaissance of resurrection. And that is the second resurrection in the run-up for al And in that resurrection, in that form of resurrection, the people will be born again. People who died, the righteous who died an instant before and the, the, everyone else who died, you know, actually died beforehand, they will be brought back in a very different way, in a way that can even tolerate eternal life. Perhaps without a body. We ask the question, why is there a need to resurrect Jacob? He didn't die. The truth is there really isn't. There's a form of resurrection that's not to take someone who's dead and bring them alive. It's just to open up the grave and allow those who are living to emerge. Ramam said some confusing and contradictory statements. He tells us that those who are part of the initial resurrection, well, they're going to die. And we ask the question, well, the Talmud says otherwise, says those who are resurrected will not die. The answer is, is that the Ram is talking about the resurrection of Messiah, where those who have never yet died just come out. And they will indeed have to die in the future, but they've never died yet before. They haven't, that's not the resurrection that's being addressed by the Talmud, which is the ultimate resurrection in the run-up for Ulmaba. Those people who come alive will in fact not die. The ones who will come alive as a Messiah have in fact yet to die. Oh, and Moshe and Aaron? You just open the grave and they can waltz into the temple and dress the high priest properly. There's a seamless re-entry because after all, they've never died. I think this is a way to understand all of our questions. It's a much deeper take on this subject. I think it's a deeper take on the nature of the initial resurrection times of Messiah. And again, it's, it's, I'm just simply using the words of the Talmud. The Talmud in the book of Shabbos 152 quotes the verse in Ezekiel. This is the opening of the graves. And that's just opening the grave. And <laughs> once you open it, there's nothing that prevents those who were buried there to just come out because they're alive. And yes, when we look at them, we cannot see that life. We will look at uh, Jacob and say, well, he needs to be buried because he's dead. Maybe we should embalm him. We should certainly eulogize him. But like Abraham and Ephron in their negotiations told us there are six people who were buried before they died. Like the Talmud tells us the righteous are deemed alive when they're dead. Jacob never died. And we understand that to be literal. Yes, we cannot perceive it, but it's literal. And there was even a conversation with someone who was dead, recorded and documented in the Talmud. Open the grave, they can come out. But there will be a second resurrection 
And that's not simply opening the grave and allowing those who were buried to walk out. That's a complete reinvention of what it even means to be a human. It's a rebirth of a human that is completely different than how we perceive humans today. Today, Ramam tells us, a human is a body and soul. Opposites must come apart. Death is a necessity in the current orientation of humanity. The righteous will come back alive in a capacity, in a way, in a means, with a means of never dying. And that is taking those who are dead and bringing them back alive. And what that means is some people have been dead for a very, very long time. Abraham and the six people, maybe the nine people or the ten people who are entered heaven alive and the person recorded in the Talmud, they're still alive. They will merit the resurrection of the dead because a second before that ultimate resurrection, they in fact will die just to facilitate the benefit of death and rebirth. I think this is true. I'm, I'm convinced it's true. Well, let me rephrase that. It seems to me that this is true. This orientation, this framing of these two resurrections. Of course, there are a lot of questions that still remain. I don't think that anything that we say on the subject will be universally accepted because there's so much nuance and so much debate. And again, when the medieval sages themselves address these subjects, they have very lengthy debates over them. So we still have to get more into the various nuances and the various other areas that cascade out of this subject. But I think this is the proper way or a proper way to understand the Messianic resurrection. I think it resolves all of our questions. And again, we still have a lot to talk about. But this, I think, again, I want to give the disclaimer again. There's a little bit of speculation here. We're speculating an answer. It's implied, I think, in the sources. It seems to me legitimate and it will resolve all of our questions. But I want to make it very clear because whenever we discuss the 13 principles of faith, I, I strive very much to source everything. You don't want to hear my opinions on these lofty matters. Or maybe you do, but I don't want to give you my opinions. So my opinions don't really carry weight. Because you know, we have our sages and we have the Talmud and we have the Midrash and we have the Rambam. These are the reputable, authoritative sources, not me. You know, I know so little. But here in this presentation, I once again remind you, this is a bit of my own um, kind of putting the pieces together and uh, you have been forewarned. I'm looking forward, please God, to continuing this study. We're four sessions into the 13th principle of resurrection. There's still some ways to go, of course. There are a lot of exotic and fun questions that we have to ponder, including the 10 that we delineated from the Sa'ad Yagon last time. We have some exciting subjects upcoming. I'm looking forward to studying it with y'all together from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. Of course, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. And I look forward to your questions, your comments, and your feedback.